Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing Brian Singer's Bohemian Rhapsody rock biopic epic. We'll also be talking about Luca Guadagnino's 2018 remake of the 1977 horror film Suspiria, the original by Dario Argento, of course. We're going to have a conversation about movies. Are they too long? Are they too short? Are movies too long nowadays? But first, the news, our first story. Ewan McGregor joins Birds of Prey as the villain Black Mask in the Warner Brothers DC project Birds of Prey. Andy, you know comics. Yeah. What is this? Uh, so Black Mask is someone who he's a recurring villain, and he, he wears a black mask, and his whole deal is that it's mind-controlling, so he can control other people or make you kind of see things that aren't there, and he's kind of a like a mysterious mysterio from would be the marvel equipment mm-hmm. uh, equivalent um so that's kind of his deal mind control and illusion right he's originally a batman villain right yeah i know him best from like one of the arkham video games but i i never really saw him in the comics he's one of the big like skull face black yeah, yeah okay it's that one exactly did, did not know he did mind control that probably says a lot about the video games because i wasn't aware that was a thing um black birds of prey is supposed to be the female driven film starring harley quinn margot robbie and, and mary elizabeth winstead it's all it's all chicks right that's the yeah deal? okay yeah, um, I can't even remember the other what their <laughs> characters are, but yeah, it's all it's basically four female villains or semi heroes, something like anti heroes. How do we feel about a a female driven anti hero film uh, going up against a, a team of of women going up against a man who can control their minds? Oh, you know, I hadn't really thought that far. I hadn't either, but honestly, intriguing and possibly creep vibes, which might make for a good movie in a way. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, he may not necessarily control their minds. He might control the minds of other people that they have to, like, fight or battle. Well, that would be lame because, again, <laughs> intriguing and or creep vibes, and that could be cool. <laughs> that, that's true. I've never known uh, our man Ewan McGregor to be a villain. Uh, it reminds me of Oscar Isaac getting cast in X-Men Apocalypse. I was, yeah. I was just like, oh, okay, I guess that'll work, and then it totally didn't. But I also like him a lot. I, I'm a I, I big McGregor fan ever since Trainspotting, so I don't know. Uh, what do you think? you think there's anything? I li- it's good to see DC spreading their wings. Sure. Ha ha. On there. <laughs> wow. Uh, oh god. <laughs> it was so good I missed it. Wow. Uh it, it's good to see DC reaching out to other villains, other I mean cuz this is what what we said is that they have a huge pantheon of characters to choose from and to put on screen mm-hmm. and that's what they need to do cuz people are too familiar with Batman Superman. They expect too much from those properties. Start spreading out, start introducing characters no one knows and you have more freedom and more license on what to do with them. Uh, uh, McGregor, I should also say, is, is known, I think, most for his, uh, I don't know, I guess, a, a, like, caring kind of character. I think of him like salmon fishing in the Yemen or last year's Christopher Robin. Like, this nice, heartwarming kind of guy. I wonder if there'll be some kind of duality there. Like, he'll be a normal dude and then behind the scenes, oh, he was Black Mask all along. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but it's weird and interesting. And that's the story. Our next one, uh, Ridley Scott moving forward with Gladiator 2. Peter Craig to write script for Paramount. Andy, have you seen Gladiator? Yes, I saw okay. it. I saw it in, in theaters. <laughs> what do you think of this? Uh, so the original Gladiator is an incredible film. I remember when it came out, people lost their minds because it was really the last sword and sand, the sandal epic that we had that was successful. Yeah, it came out uh, 2011 Oscar noms and five wins. Yeah, Pretty I mean, huge. it was a huge deal. It, it came out in May. It was a summer movie. 
This came out of nowhere and it had everything, it had action and drama and really great effects. Um, and just kind of came in and swept the Oscars. Uh, whether or not it kind of deserved to is, is debatable, but it was definitely kind of a, a cla- instant classic. Um, and we have, like I said, we haven't had a lot of successful sword and sandals since. So we've had a lot of failures. Uh, Kingdom of Heaven comes to mind. Oh, I was thinking of uh, Troy. Sam, Sam Rockwell's Clash of the Titans. You remember that? Yes. Just totally came and went. Oh, God. So the interesting thing about this is, so the, the sequel will follow... Uh, the young kid Lucius, which is uh, Connie Nielsen's son in the original film, nephew of Joaquin Phoenix, right? Yes, um, I, and that's all I I know. It's all the only details we have. I imagine we'll you know be going back to the gladiatorial arena, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. Um, but the real interesting part about this is actually the script for because they had a script for Gladiator Two for a while now that is bizarre. It it involves yeah. <laughs> Maximus. I ask about that. It w- involves Maximus. Traveling through time, fighting in all these different wars, and eventually becoming president. Mm-hmm. Like, no joke. It's its really... It's like heaven. There's a whole thing. It's written by Peter Craig, uh, whose credits include The Town, two Hunger Game films. He's also writing Top Gun Maverick. And apparently he just turned in a script for the Logan's Run remake, which... It's kind of neat, so I, I don't I don't know what that means exactly, but it's definitely different from the uh, going to heaven thing and and yeah. fighting in wars and becoming president, which I'm glad. You think there's any? Ch- I mean, what do you figure the odds are Russell Crowe makes an appearance? Gotta be. He won Best Actor for it, right? Like it'd be it'd be he, weird to leave him out. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great for him to show up as you know, some in sort some of ghost. Fa- a flashback or something. Yeah. yeah, like have a little a little Russell Gladiator ghost. I I mean I don't know what to think of this exactly. I man. I, I've been burned by two alien films, uh, uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Both were, I don't want to say rough. Alien Covenant was rough. Prometheus had something going for it. I I didn't really get it at the time, but there was something there. So when I I read that Ridley Scott's making a sequel to an old movie he did once, I'm like, oh God, like what are we in for now? Yeah, I mean, he does have a habit of butchering his classic films. But he also wrote those, I think. So maybe if this is a new guy, it'll be kind of its own I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, and I can't believe. I mean, it's been nearly twenty years since that that film came out. Um, so there's there's a lot there now. I mean, we 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 haven't had a film like this in a long time. Like I just remember the scale being epic, like a ton of extras, great effects, and and that's, epic story. That's what scares me on this one because it's being put out by Paramount. Not to not to bash Paramount, but excuse me while I bash Paramount. I have this vision of like some up and coming, essentially no name actor in the main role. And, and instead of like, yeah, the big Coliseum with like hundreds of thousands of extras, it's going to be all CGI and it's going to be all phoned in. And like, it's going to be obvious that they're not really there and they're just doing green screen. And like, it's going to, it's going to hurt, but a man can dream. We'll see what happens, I guess. Uh, and that's it for gladiator two. We'll keep an eye on it. Stay tuned to Offscript for more. Uh, the last story we have, in an Oscar bid, Netflix will release three movies in theaters first. This stuff frustrates me. We've talked about it on the show before. Netflix is going to be releasing Alfonso Cuaron's new film, a black and white drama named Roma, which is being hailed as a masterpiece by critics who've seen it at festivals. They're also going to le- release The Ballad of Buster Scruggs and Bird Box, which is a thriller starring Sandra Bullock and Sarah Paulson. All will be going to theaters before they hit Netflix. Andy, what do you think? Um, well, they're obviously doing it so they can contend for awards. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there's a, been a number of Netflix films that I wish I would have been able to see in theater. Uh, oh, I can't remember the Idris <laughs> no, Elba film. Not Bright. Um, yeah. What was the Idris Elba film? Uh, Carrie Fukunaga. 
Uh, oh, you saw it. I didn't see it, though. Beast of No Nation. Beast of No Nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I wish I would have been able to see that in theater. So I think it's a, it's a really cool opportunity. At the same time, I pay for Netflix because so I don't have to go to the theater. And mm-hmm. I, I just kind of – sometimes I do want to kind of just wait on them and just watch them at home. So uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. The, I'm really looking forward to at least the first two, Roma and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It's tough, man. Like this is this, this seems to be this this odd eternal struggle with – uh, film award places like the Academy or the Emmys or the Golden Globes and uh, streaming services. And, and I don't get it. Spielberg has said uh, Netflix's movies should be considered for television awards and not films because they're not like real movies because they don't come out in theaters. Alfonso Cuaron, who, did, who won an Oscar for Gravity, his movie Roma is coming out on Netflix, which is weird, but even he said, I would rather see their stuff on a big screen. Like... I know we've talked about it before, but like, is, is there any kind of solution to the this odd struggle of whether or not Netflix's movies are movies or Amazon or Hulu for that matter, HBO even? Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, that's that's just total gatekeeping. Like, if you create a motion picture story, that is a, a movie, that is a film. Like, just because yeah. it's not screened in in like mainstream theaters mm-hmm. doesn't make any any less of a movie. And it's you know, it's changing with the time. People love staying at home. Watching on the couch. Yeah. Like, I, I, I get the whole, like, there are directors out there who have this horrifying ideal of what Netflix is, which is, oh, my God, people are watching movies on their phones. And it's like, well, yeah, but not everybody. God, you can't you can't look at it as Netflix equals people watching movies on, on a screen yeah. this big. Like, I've that, never done that. I, I would never do that. I've done it a couple times. But all the movies I've seen, for God's sake, uh, uh, once for this show, I watched a movie on an iPad, and I did it in the dark with the iPad directly in my face, like, so it looked like a big screen. It was stupid but it worked. Uh, Florida Project, by the way. Great movie. Um, I, I, don't, I don't get why this happens. I, back in the day, when people started to make the move to digital instead of film, and when they moved to, to shooting on you know digital cameras instead of reel-to-reel, that came up. They were like, that's not real film. You're not even shooting on film. How can you call it a film? I saw yeah. an experimental movie when I was in school. I don't remember the name of it. I think it was called Mothlight, off the top of my head. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a guy who had got a bunch of dead moths and he had essentially glued and taped parts of them to raw 35 millimeter film and then scratched and painted all over it and ran it through a projector and it's like 35 seconds long and it is seizure inducing and it's a short film and the way i see it if you can call that a film all right anything netflix does can be considered a film what (laughs) what difference does it make all right like film is experimental and it's unique and it's it's like art it's difficult to nail down in one category i feel like people standing up directors standing up and saying well that's not really a movie are just afraid that what netflix puts out might be better than their own work and that even goes to spielberg and i say that because i saw ready player one and it was okay uh we should move on to our first film of the evening uh this is brian singer's bohemian rhapsody So Bohemian Rhapsody is the story of Queen. It's a, it's a rock biopic similar to uh, Ray starring Jamie Foxx. Jamie Fox. Uh, I, I thought a lot of Oliver Stone's The Doors uh, when I went and saw this, a movie that I, I hold near and dear, actually love a lot. 
Uh, it is the story of specifically Freddie Mercury, uh, the lead singer of Queen, and his rise from a young uh, uh, Pakistani uh, immigrant working at Heathrow Airport. I think he's actually Indian. Indian. Really? They yeah. make the Pakistani joke a lot. That's why. Indian, <laughs> Indian <laughs> he immigrant. He has to correct everyone. Fair. Indian immigrant uh, working at Heathrow Airport to... Uh, his his rise as Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen, uh, up to their uh, penultimate concert at Live Aid to raise money uh, for starving children in Ethiopia. It is two hours and 15 minutes. It has a ton of Queen music, which rocks and rolls and will keep your foot tapping. Uh, the film, maybe not so much. Andy, what did you think of Bohemian Rhapsody? <laughs> So in a phrase, I thought it was savagely mediocre. <laughs> Thunderingly <laughs> average, yes. Uh, so there's there's a lot of good things about it. There's a lot of things that um, are not not good about it. Yeah. Uh, the first half is very weak, and it kind of feels like a lifetime movie. Yeah. Um, the basically the band and the and no one on screen deals with any conflict it's like oh we need a singer here's a singer oh we we need money here's money here oh we need a record here's here's a deal it's uh -huh. just like oh, now he's married it's just it goes by really really fast there's right. no struggle there's no you don't get to know the characters you don't like it's just it's really pretty rough the film does get better the longer it goes and and the end is definitely has some more um kind of powerful moments but the first half is really weak and also as you know, the whole point of a music biopic is to get insight into an artist that you either don't know or to learn things you don't know. And I feel, felt like the entire story was just a t like apocryphal story after apocryphal story. Right. Apocryphal meaning because you had to explain some earlier for folks who don't know. Right. So it's, it's when someone kind of tells you it, it, a, a mixture of legend and fact. Uh -huh. You know, it's like, oh, when they recorded this, this totally happened, and this, you know, this person totally said this, and then it just happened. You right. Know, it's, it's it's like saying Paul Bunyan was chopping down redwoods in one swing. Like, yeah, it's not true, but it sounds nice, and like, it's, yeah. Well, and a lot of times those stories are retconned after something is successful. Yes. Uh, I was oddly disappointed with this movie, and it's not it's not that it's bad. I think it's good. But the fact is, when you're listening to Queen and, and Bohemian Rhapsody and, and Under Pressure and, and all of their incredible music, and you think about Freddie Mercury, who truly was an incredible, incredible person, uh, they're great, right? So their movie should be great. And it just isn't. It's just good. And at the end of the day, that's not good enough. And there's things in it that are redeemable, but ultimately it doesn't hit the bar. We should talk about the good things first that yes. seems like a good place to start me personally uh, i one was enamored with the music there was a ton of it uh, a lot of music all across their discography it wasn't just the hits they actually left a couple hits out in lieu of things like their first track ever their right. track one one off their first album uh they they had a lot of uh, music video references where they reshot music videos they had concert bits that they reshot uh, they didn't actually use any as far as I know, archival footage was all reshot, um, and all that stuff looked pretty good, uh, and the music fit it really well. I was surprised at how well uh, Rami Malek could... Rami? Rami? I think for, it's Rami. For the sake of this show, Rami. Uh, Rami Malek could uh, lip-sync to Freddie Mercury. I was pretty convinced after yeah. a while, and we should talk about his performance, too, but what, what, have, what have you thought of what I've said so well, that, far? That's actually where I was going to start, yes. is his performance is really good once, once he becomes Freddie Mercury, like... 
the backstory of him becoming it from being a no one to to Freddy is really rough and really rushed because like in liter- literally in one scene he's kind of like a shy airport worker and then five minutes later he's like fabulous and a diva Freddie Mercury there's yeah. like no transition of the character or development of the character right and and that really hurts it Remy Malik's performance is, is genuinely great he, he is he, he brings a confidence to the role that is exactly what you need he wears that stupid fake teeth thing throughout the whole movie and it kind of works there's a lot of scenes especially when he's got the mustache grown out he pretty sells it pretty well like he, he looks like Freddie they, they, they managed to sync the lips up so he sounds like him uh, I mean, it, it works real well, and he's, he's got that like bravado that it felt like Freddie had, but we never get to how he got that. Yeah. He goes from being like this meat kind of kid who writes songs, and then it's it, like, it, I mean, minutes later on screen, you're now confident Freddie Mercury. And it's like, hold on, where where's the turn? Like, if this is supposed to be Freddie's story, when does that happen? And it just skips it because it's got to cover 20 years of a band in two hours, 15. And, and it spends that time in the wrong places. Right. Yeah. Um, so that re- that reminds me that that's important for people to know is that originally Sasha Baron Cohen was supposed to play the lead. <laughs> I was going to wait till the end to talk about this, but maybe it's going to talk about it now. Go okay. ahead. Well, so he wanted to tell a very honest story about Freddie Mercury, uh, you know, kind of a warts and all version. Mm-hmm. And then the band members who were still alive got involved and they did not want that at all. They wanted the band to look good. They wanted it to, they wanted the movie to be about the band, not just about Freddie. Right. There's a great review. There's, there's a great interview of, of Sacha Baron Cohen on Howard, the Howard Stern show from a few years back where he talks about this. And he, and he said they approached him, the band approached him and said, we want to make a rock biopic about Queen, and he was like, "This is awesome," because he looks he looks like Freddie, and they were like, "You you know, we think you'll be great." Um, and and he said, "Okay, well, I want to do it, man. I, I want to do it so hard. I because Freddie Mercury was a legend, man. Like he, there are stories of his parties that are insane, like things you can't even imagine the the, the drugs and the sex and the booze and the everything, and and the the band was just like, no, no, we don't want to do any of that. Like we want it to be." like nice whitewashed queen like yeah. we're, we're this wonderful little band and he was like what are you talking about like no so he ended up leaving the project and i know you can't you can't dislike a movie for what it isn't you have to appreciate it for what it is so it's difficult to say well it could have been this but like really like i mean queen was a wild band who did crazy things which are which is in this movie but it's so like PG. It's so yeah. it's so family friendly. <laughs> it's the lifetime version. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't dig in and get into the nitty gritty. You don't you don't see mountains of cocaine. Like you don't you don't really ever get any of that. It's just yeah, Freddie had a drinking problem and he showed up to work late. Like it's it's presumed he's on drugs. <laughs> I, like I mean, they, he just uh, described half of America. Yeah, they, they say he's uh, you know uh, Freddie, are you high again? But like. Man, where's that like? Where's that rise and demise? Where's Freddie Mercury becoming this great being and then stumbling and falling? It's in there, but it's just so like it's it's, it's watered it's down. Ten feet away with yeah. a pole. Yeah, you never get into it. Um, what, a great description I I heard, which uh, was by Clarice Lowry, who's on uh, on the Kermode Mayo show. She subs in on there on the BBC. Yeah, she said, you know, there's two kinds of queen. There's the queen that played at, at Live Aid, and there's the music videos and the albums, and then there's the queen that people butcher on Thursday night karaoke. <laughs> and he was like, or she, she said, this movie is that karaoke version of Queen. Yeah. It's, it's the butchered, watered down, and it's everyone's screaming off key. We, we sh- okay, we, we should 
dig into this more before we go keep slamming it, but I do want to get back to this. Um, reviewing kind of where the movie goes, you get these hops in time, which I get it. You got to cover 20 years of, uh, of a band in two hours 15. It makes sense, but it, it, it seems to... <sighs> It just lacked, it lacked a certain energy. It's not that things were particularly slow, but, man, there were a lot of scenes cut to Queen music. I mean, it makes sense. There's a lot of recreated stuff in concerts. It just lacks that punch and that, like, hard rock vibe. It just feels kind of lazy. They just kind of... It looked like the editor was struggling in a lot of bits. Yeah. And, and it struggles with color. That was something I noticed. In order Agreed. to make the, the the band scenes when they're actually on stage and Freddie's wearing some wacky outfit and they got these big lights on, in order to make those seem colorful and vibrant, they watered down the rest of the movie. The rest of the movie looks dull and gray. And the fact is, on a budget, you can only shoot so much of a bombastic concert scene. So you end up with a lot of this movie just looking kind of dull. Yeah, it's just kind of gray and brown and washed out, and they, there's some really poor green screen effects we were talking about before we started. Um, it's really a bummer. It just doesn't look that impressive. There's not that many cool tricks. I, I kept thinking of somebody like Edgar Wright and and his sequence in Shaun of the Dead, which also has a couple Queen tributes in there, including the end credits, yeah. <laughs> where they're beating a zombie to "Don't Stop Me Now." Yeah, this movie doesn't have anything of that quality. Never once does it yeah. come to that. I thought the the same thing. I was like, I've seen Queen use so Queen music used so well in so many movies. Yes, and it's used very like mediocre, it's mediocrely just, yeah, in this movie. It's really, <laughs> in their own movie, and, and like it's such a bummer because like you finally get a Queen biopic. It's like if they made a Led Zeppelin biopic and it was just okay. It's just like that's unacceptable. It has to be better than okay. It has to be really good. Also, where the uh, where the story. So the whole thing is this lead up to Live Aid. And then that's kind of where the the story ends. Mm -hmm. And then Freddie was alive another six years, and they just <laughs> ignore that part. And they, yeah, I mean, they, and yes, they 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 touch on his his um, HIV diagnosis, which actually that really bothered me because he was like, "Hey guys, I have AIDS." No, you don't have AIDS. You have HIV. Right. You don't develop that. He didn't develop that until the last six months of his life. Right. They they really sweep that stuff under the rug, just like the drugs. And it's just like, just for efficiency's sake, let's just hurry up. And it's a bummer because, again, with a movie that's two hours 15, like, you can spend time in better places. You can really develop, like, relationships and stuff. But you never... You never really get that. It's just a cursory glance. And the other issue with that is that it focuses on Freddy, but at the end of the movie, when you get... I don't think this is too spoilery, but when you get the whole, you know, like any any live action, live recreation, when you get like, here's what happened to everybody, and Freddy passed away this year, nothing ever comes up about the other bandmates. It's just oh, Freddy. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell happened to the other guys? Yeah. Like, <laughs> nope, doesn't matter. You, you never get any of that. It's it's just Freddie Mercury. It's it's really a bummer. And the movie has this theme of family in it, of of hey, you know the guys at Queen they were family, sure. But like when it comes down to it, you're only telling us they're family. You're not showing us they're family. Yeah. We don't feel that. You just tell us that they are. So it was almost like watching a like a like, well, Lifetime movie is a fine way. It's almost like watching a, a like a documentary recreation of what it was like. Yeah. Like it's just a nice <laughs> PG thirteen version of what it was. Um, so yeah. Uh, another thing that really bothered me is that they have several scenes of them writing the song. One is Bohemian Rhapsody. One is another one bites the dust. I can't remember what the third one is. But they all kind of follow the same formula where the band's like fighting and they're like, no, this will never work. Oh, we have to be experimental. Oh, look, we got a hit. And they do that three times. And it's just like, it, it it's a real detriment to probably how the actual creative process is and was. 
Uh, and it just sounds like a bunch of 15-year-olds sitting around talking about, like, oh, this is how we're going to write songs. Yeah, it's lightweight. I'm like, man, I want to see fist fights. Like, I want to see people throwing bottles of alcohol at each other in the studio. Like, I want to see guys get angry, you know, because that's that's what rock and roll is. Like, I, I have trouble believing it's just like, hey, I wrote this song. I should get credit for it. No, you should. Like, it's, and then what it really comes down to is when they're trying to sell Bohemian Rhapsody to EMI, the, the record producer, um, they come in and they're all agreed. We're going to make a night at the opera. It's going to be opera. It's going to be great. They're all on the same page about it. And that never seems to happen through the rest of the movie. It's like, so when it's convenient for the movie's sake, you all agree on something. But when you're trying to move the plot along, you disagree. It doesn't feel like real life. It feels like you're making a movie. And that's not, yeah. it's not what a, it's not what, you know, a biopic is supposed to be. Also, I wanted to point out a big uh, continuity error mm -hmm. that I spotted and this is Ooh, probably okay yeah th so in the scene where where they're writing um another one bites the dust you know they're fighting and then uh the basis he starts playing the famous ba bass line oh, yeah. so he has a five string bass in that scene in the very next <laughs> scene he has a four string bass oh really mm -hmm. i didn't notice that at all that's that's a little music thing yeah i think there's a couple like weird errors i, I noticed a bit in the movie because rami malik rami malik rami malik i keep saying it's fine uh, he's wearing those monster like chompers he's got to wear uh, to to get the fake Freddy teeth, which stretches jaw out again, helps him make make him look like Freddy. I get it. There's definitely a scene or two where they dub over his normal speech because he couldn't like pronounce words correctly yeah. wearing it. And there's a couple times when it's noticeable. There's bad green screen. Like there's some just some stuff in this movie that's questionable. It's like what the hell happened, guys? Like you're making a Queen biopic. This should have been huge, you know. And it just felt oddly rushed uh and that bums me out the, the the real as far as the cgi goes or the mistakes the the live aid stuff at the end like it, it's so obviously not really like they didn't it looks like they got a handful of extras and just cgi like copy pasted yeah. them into a stadium and it's like great now you got a stadium full of people like it just just phoned in you didn't have to fill out a stadium but there's there's movies that have done it better yeah there's also I want to. There's a lot of like really cringy moments in the in the first half, or a lot of times, like I said, when they're telling these stories that seem very apocryphal, uh, where it's like that person, no one would actually say that to someone else. It, right. I'm just like cringing inside. It doesn't work. I I really struggled with Freddie's kind of turn to become uh, formally gay. That takes. Mm -hmm way too long to get to and they really drag it out and i was like is this supposed to be the point of this movie is it supposed to be a coming out story yeah and it's kind of not but it just takes a really long time to get there and maybe it took his whole life to figure out he was gay but like it 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 just takes a long time uh and, and that was frustrating in a way i was like just we we all know just get to it you know just make it make it happen guys like let's stop wasting film time like running time on on padding that out and focus on other things focus on his relationships with people freddie mercury hung out with michael jackson freddie mercury hung out with david bowie neither of those are in this movie yeah. i'm not saying you had to <laughs> cast him but like let's talk about it for a second like let's talk about who he was and what he was doing instead of just like you know looking at him from from uh, through a glass window yeah, and it you know what I think of some of the great stories I know about Queen, and one of them is in the in the early '90s, right before he was gonna die, they filmed their last music video, uh, "The Show Must Go On," and I mean, Freddie could barely make it through the video, and if you look at, it, I mean, he looks it's like he's got he's got a foot foot in the ground. They foot. they yeah, I've seen it. They put a ton of makeup on him, and he still looks horrible. Yeah, like, and the, it's but bad. it's but that's like that's an incredible story that he still wanted to make sure to get this. Um, this music video made, get this song done, still, like, even though he's on death's story, still wants to be an artist, still wants to 
yeah. like perform and everything. Yeah, and and that that was good. I we should talk about that for a second because I I've seen people say on on social media they saw this movie and man they cried and it was just it tugs at the heartstrings. It does do that. To be fair, yeah. For us, obviously, we're a little <laughs> jaded and quite get there, but yeah, it's 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 sweet and there's some stuff in there that's nice. Freddie's Freddie's kind of struggles to feel like he belongs in a world where he is just completely unique is pretty good. I, I wouldn't put it on par with anything like, again, Oliver Stone's The Doors and Val Kilmer's performance, uh, or, or even Ray, Ray Charles, uh, uh, Sid and Nancy, Gary Oldman's uh, uh, Sid Vicious. Like, it doesn't, it does not hit that bar, but if you're coming at it in a cursory way, the music is great. You'll love Rami, Rami, Rami Malik. good God. Uh, you'll love his performance as Freddie. He's great. And, and that kind of struggle to, to feel like you belong is good. Um, that stuff's good. And the music, again, music's great. Uh-huh. <laughs> the can't, can't, can't underline that enough. But man, it just, it's, it's such a shame. It could have been so much more. It could have been yeah. so much better. And it just doesn't get there. Any other thoughts? No. Recommendations. Andy, what did you, th- would you recommend every time? Would you recommend Bohemian Rhapsody? <laughs> Uh, so I struggled a lot with this. Um, I would probably recommend it to fans. If you're a big Queen fan, yeah. you're probably going to enjoy it. If you're a mu- musician, there's parts you'll roll your eyes, but it, it's enjoyable. But it was really just lukewarm at the middle of the road. I, it was just okay for me. So if you're okay going to see something that's just okay, <laughs> then fine. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. If you're a big Queen fan, if you're a big classic rock fan, and if you love a good rock biopic, uh, you will probably enjoy this movie. But you gotta know, like, it could have been more. Like, it could have been so much better with a solid director and a good script and a band that wasn't afraid to show the underside of what they really were. It really could have been great. Instead, it just comes out as good. And like I said at the at the top of the show good is not enough for a band like queen so if it comes to netflix totally totally worth your time you don't have to pay a dime to watch it totally and as far as the theater goes unless you got some friends that really want to go see it maybe skip it it's pretty good it's just not great and that's a bummer for bohemian rhapsody uh we should talk about our next topic Uh, andy you want to do the honors with the title it's time for the death of cinema So uh, you want to take this? One? What am I doing? Well, no, take I one. was just going to say that we haven't Please. had haven't yeah. had the death of cinema in in over a month because we've been doing uh, off script House of Horror. <laughs> we have yes. Um, so our topic this week is are movies too long? Uh, article came out uh, last week. Uh, what what publication was it? IndieWire put right. this out. Yeah, asking are movies too long? Because we've had a couple of really long movies, uh, Suspiria, which we're going to talk about uh, soon, as mm-hmm. well as other. Um, things over two hours and yes. so the question is are films too long zach what do you think okay uh well the, the IndieWire article had a lot of interesting takes they got a bunch of their film critics together and every one of them wrote a little bit about it and it's just do you think movies are too long uh i i haven't i honestly i'll, I'll be only fair i haven't read through all of them uh but for what it's worth it's an interesting question to pose and and people have a lot to say about this we posted it on our show page we had a couple comments andy jumped in and had something to say about it <laughs> I, man, I, I struggle with this because we see two movies a week uh, on average, usually more if we're watching anything at home or with, with friends. Uh, I check run times. I do. We, we go see movies. I want to know what I'm in for. I, I try not to check my watch during a movie. But ultimately, 
Actually, you know, let's save ultimately for the end. Let's just see what I think. That's <laughs> okay, what this okay, is all okay. about. Um, maybe. Maybe, <laughs> maybe movies are too long. Uh, and the reason I say that is because, uh, man, I- I'll go see something like Bohemian Rhapsody. I'll check my watch halfway through. I'm like, when's this going to be over? Like, this is, this is not great. This is taking a long time. Meanwhile, I'll go see something like Suspiria. You know, I'll save Suspiria for the end of the show. I'll go see something like Better on 2049. And, like, I can't look away from the screen. Yeah. It so much depends on what you're watching. If you're watching a Marvel movie, you're expecting something that's like 90 to 110 minutes. You're going to get a fun little romp with a three-act structure. It's easy, and you know where you're in for. If you're watching something experimental and it's a little weird, maybe. I, I, it, so it's tough <laughs> that's to gonna say. going to be a struggle. <laughs> I don't know if I can say that movies are trending either way. What, what do you think? It, it all depends on the story being told. Mm. Uh a lot of times I see movies that I feel are too long, but that just means that you you had 90 minutes of material, you stretched it into two hours. Right. Because you know, I've seen 90-minute movies that have felt too long because they didn't, ha- they, they didn't have enough material. And then I've seen movies that are two hours that could have been even longer that I felt didn't explore everything that the movie was trying to say. So it, it's really about you know the, the story and do you, have, do you actually have enough story to fill the time? Um, and as far as things like Blade Runner 40, 2049 or Titanic or Schindler's List, these things that are begin to approach three hours, I mean, I feel like those films are, are pretty rare. And so when they come along, it, it's a little more special when someone decides to really, you know, uh, swing for the fences and be experimental and try to make a really long film. And that also cuts into, you know, showtimes. It, the longer a film is, the fewer screenings it can have during a day. And that affects theaters yeah, and studios sure. bottom line so i'm sure there's lots of research that has been done and said probably two <laughs> two hours is probably where you want to be at summer blockbusters tend to lean towards 220 230 so people feel like they're getting their money's worth right it's it's funny you mentioned showtimes because i went and saw our next film suspiria at my local cinemark and this is the first time i think i've seen this ever at a movie theater they're running limited show they only ran it for like a week or something i don't even know if they ran it over the weekend i, I went and saw it on a weekday uh, they had 15 minutes between screenings. That's it. It was just enough time for them to clean it. They didn't even run like a pre-show. It was just yeah, there was some kind of stupid ad or something, and then trailers started. Like it was wild. I, I don't. I can't remember the last time oh, I saw wow. a major chain do that. But it's exactly that. When the movie's that long, and odds are not that many people are going to go see it because it's art house. You got to cram in as many screenings as possible, and that matters. There's an economy there. But outside of that. The age of smartphones obviously has us wanting everything now, now, now. That's great. And the age of binge watching, right, Netflix and whatnot, has us enjoying longer stories. So it's tough. It's tough to say where people are. Do people want something short, sweet, and they're in and they're out? Or do people want something long and drawn out and kind of a good epic story? I think a fine... (laughs) Go ahead. I was going to say, I I saw something over the weekend that was like, you know, people have a problem with a two-hour movie, but we'll sit down and watch an eight-hour show. Yeah, totally. I think a great example here, something to look at, uh, and this is older, but hear me out, Titanic, you mentioned right. earlier. How do you make a 195-minute film when you know, and everybody else going to that theater knows, at the end, the boat sinks? How do you do it? How do you make a movie that long, that interesting, when you already know the ending? And James Cameron did it brilliantly. It's because it's about the journey, not the destination. Mm, it's because it's about the journey, not the destination. It's about building melodrama and a classic Hollywood epic. It's about building romance and suspense and character and putting all of these elements together and knowing that at the end of the day, your audience knows how it ends and having that tragedy come along anyway. It's being able to watch the story and go, oh, God, I hope they make it. I hope it works. Building up that hope and like esteem like that. 
that is so much of what film can be and 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 when it comes to determining length like I think it's it's that part of people it's that smartphone bit it's that impatience it's the internet age wanting everything now 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 I think that is what has people looking at run, running time. I think that's that's what has people going, you know, I want to I just want to know how long it is and get in and out and I want to move on, you know, I want to go along with my day, but when it comes to something like binge watching and 8 hours of watching a show like it 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 we're we're not desensitized. We're not tired of of long stories. We just want stories that are told well. And when it comes to Hollywood in the age of scripts and CGI and moving everything along fast and just trying to make a buck at the end of the day, sometimes that gets lost. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and one thing that that I've heard, uh, you brought up the you know the smartphone generation. Sure. Uh, you know, I hear the youths, um, <laughs> the youth. Yes. Um, that you know, actually, that they I, and I've heard this said sometimes that they don't really like going to f- films because they can't be on their phone. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's definitely something to kind of consider if you're if you're used to being on your phone all the time and you go into somewhere where you're not really supposed to be on it. Like I, I can see why. Well, no, I don't want to go to a long movie. I, you know, got to check check my what, and that's not a criticism of them. It's just a difference. Sure, it, you know, one movie that comes to mind, of course, when we talk about length, is like we mentioned, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, the best film of last year, hands mm-hmm. down. <laughs> which I, I rewatched recently. So. Uh, which, well, I hope it was just as great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I heard so many people say watching Blade Runner twenty forty nine is like watching paint dry, and, and I I die a little inside every time every time i hear it it hurts my heart um it it truly is ultimately up to the viewer to decide if you feel like a movie is too long or too short it's up to the experience it's up to the director it's up to so many factors to decide what we think so it's it's not that films are trending either way i don't i don't think we can say films are longer than they used to be or films are shorter than they used to be somebody like tarantino would argue films are shorter especially because he just made the hateful eight right uh somebody like uh, brian singer would probably argue films are longer um i don't know i, I don't know where we'd land but either way i, I well the one thing that, that I, I think i'll finish with is that as we've said before enjoying cinema all depends on the expectations you bring and so the time expectation can be part of that. If you're expecting a two and a half hour film, that kind of like when you get surprised by how long something is, that's kind of the worst. Right. Um, and, and it's just, it, I mean, if you go into Blade Runner 2049, knowing what the subject matter is, being familiar with the first one, knowing what kind of film it's probably going to be about, then you're going to enjoy it. If you think it's, I don't know, going to be maybe some sort of action movie or not a slow burn detective thing, then yeah, you're not going to really enjoy it. Sure. I think uh, something I guess filmmakers Hollywood should take away from this is is ultimately when it when it comes to the editing room where all of this stuff happens, where the magic truly comes together and the film becomes the film like you should never be thinking we got to cut 20 minutes or we're not going to make enough money or something that should never matter. It should never be. Well, we got to pad this out so people really like it. It comes down to, again, the story you tell is the story worth telling. Do you have enough story? Is that what you said? Do you have yeah. enough story to last? Yeah. That's that's what should matter. And and I don't know. When you think of it that way, the argument almost seems um, derivative. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I it's pretty subjective. Yeah, it, it really is. So that's our films too long. Ultimately, uh, you decide, I guess. Yeah. But, but for us, probably not. Uh, in the case of, of our next film... Maybe not at all. You'll have to see. Uh, Andy, you've agreed very generously <laughs> to take the summary for this film. Please go ahead. This is Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria. 
So as Zach said, uh, this is a remake of the 1977 classic by Italian, f- not film composer, filmmaker, filmmaker. Uh, Dario Argento. Yes. Um, the This new version takes place uh, in 1977 and centers around a young girl named Susie Banyan. I want to keep wanting to say, oh, Banyan. Susie Banyan. Banyan, yeah. Um, who comes from, the, from America to West Berlin uh, to study at this famed uh, dance company. Uh, specifically with Madame Blanc, mm-hmm. played by uh, Til- Tilda Swinton. Yes. Uh, we learned very early on that uh, the company is run by a coven of witches and that there's lots of kind of witchcrafty things uh, going on and lo- lots of strange uh, dis-dealings within the company. And this is all amidst the, the political backdrop of uh, divided Berlin. Um, and that's kind of the story, and it's important to know that this is very, very different from the 1977 version. It is essentially just taking the premise of that film and making something entirely new. Mm-hmm. So with that, Zach, what do you think? <laughs> uh, okay. you. I have a very strange history with the film Suspiria. I've talked about it on the show before. I'll probably talk about it here in a minute, but I want to get into the review. You called me after you saw this movie. Yes. <laughs> and you said something in there that I think is so perfect. It so perfectly describes Suspiria. You said, it's definitely bold cinema. Suspiria 2018 <laughs> is so bold cinema, man. Oh, it's the boldest of bold cinema. It's arguably some of the boldest we've seen all year, and that's including Mandy. This movie is really something, and I, 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 I don't know how to feel about it, frankly. <laughs> I, I need to see it again, and that says so much when I say when I walk out of a movie and go, I have to watch that again. Yeah. What did you think of Suspiria? So I went into it really pretty skeptical. Uh, I was listening to our episode last week, and I say on there I was was really apprehensive at the runtime because it is. You know, two hours, 40 minutes. Stout, yes. Um, with with trailers and everything means it's th- going to be a three-hour affair at, at the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't real impressed with the trailer. I just didn't really know what it was about. Um, but I knew that Luca Guadagnino is a great filmmaker. Was really impressed with um, Call Me By Your Name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the end, I was absolutely blown away. And I was really surprised by that because I, I went in it. I, I wasn't on board with it the first kind of 20 minutes or so. Um, sure. It really blew me away. And and the reason is um, there's a lot of the themes and subtext, which I want to get into later, uh, but just the story itself, it's great horror. Um, we, we know that, that, you know, there's a lot of kind of archetypes. The virgin sacrifice is kind of the, what Susie Banyan is kind of meant to fulfill, but mm-hmm. it kind of subverts that on end. But it's, it's very disturbing and it's psychological horror. It's not it's not jump scare, it's not slasher. It's there's a lot of body horror, there's a lot of things that make you wince and and cringe and and, yeah. the, and again, lots of mood and atmosphere. It reminded me a lot of something as great as The Shining. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. This review, just a disclaimer, this review may sound a little stilted because this movie feels difficult to talk about. Like yeah. we we talked about it before and we talked about it after we saw it. And even still, I, I'm not really sure what to think of it. Like, if I had to liken it to anything, I'd say The Shining is probably the closest. It is psychological in nature. It is slow. It is it is burning. There there are things in there that are startling. There are things in there that are beautiful. Like it's yeah. it's very engaging in a oddly hypnotic way, but not in the way The Shining is hypnotic. The Shining is hypnotic because it is slow and it is it is it is 
I don't want to say agonizing, but it's 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 paced. And this is actually kind of slow, but it's edited fast and quick, and it cuts around the room, and it's 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 efficient. Let's talk about first the performances. That seems like a good place to start, yeah, right? Right. Um, go ahead, please. Okay, so uh, Dakota Johnson, who we just saw in Bad Times at the El Royale, uh, she plays the lead, Susie Banyan, mm-hmm. who's kind of a bright-eyed, but bushy-tailed uh, young woman. She shows up to this very kind of fierce uh, studio. Fish out of water. She's an American in Berlin. Yeah. Yeah, from Ohio. Um, and she immediately, you know, s- someone gets sent away. She fills uh, the part, um, you know. And, and one of the big things that's important to know, so I think in the original that the big twist is that the dance company is a coven of witches. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, you find that out in like the first 10 minutes. So right. that, that, that's not like a spoiler. Yeah. Um, they, they, they pretty much tell you straight up. Yeah. yeah and they're kind of grooming these girls for, for like a, a ritual. Uh, and they, they kind of imbibe or imbue Susie with, with like not dance powers, but they kind of transfer their, their power to her. Right. Which is not, again, it's, it's not like vague. It's like, pretty straight up that's yeah. what's happening like yeah. it, it it tells you right away yeah um so but anyway the dance stuff is really incredible like i was thinking man she she probably had to get in really in, or she got in incredible shape he's really convincing as a dancer all, all the dance stuff is is really fine yeah um and then you have uh tilda swinton who who is you know madame blanc um and is one of the kind of the leaders of this this company and this this coven um and it's hard to describe her performance. It's it's really it's really intense. Um, she really cares about the, the girls in the company, and particularly uh, Susie. Yeah, classic Swinton. Uh, very intense. Uh, very very, um, very like she just immerses herself in the role. She it's you stop seeing Tilda Swinton at some point, and you're like, okay, I just she is this character she presents herself as. Sorry, I don't have anything else to say. About <laughs> yeah, that. no. Yeah, no. So no, uh, Dakota Johnson is really incredible. Mm. Um, let, let's kind of move on with the guy. I don't, I'm not really sure where to go. Story? Boy, uh, well, real quick, let me hop in. Uh, okay. Dakota Johnson was almost unrecognizable for me. And I just saw her in Bad Times the Oriel. Yeah. I got out of the movie and I, I was talking to you about it. You said Dakota Johnson. Was that Dakota Johnson? Because I couldn't tell. Maybe it's the red hair. But yeah, the dancing and everything, like she just seemed like a different person, um, which... I, again, it, nothing but but positive towards the role. I, I was really impressed with the other girls as well. A lot of the other cast is foreign. A lot of them I didn't recognize. The only other one that came to mind is Chloe Grace Moretz. Right. It was pretty good. Uh, uh, she she does she's not in the limelight as much as in her other films. We should say she's not up front like everybody else. But as a supporting character, I enjoyed her. I thought she was good. Uh, an odd casting though. She didn't could have been anybody. It didn't really have to yeah. be her, but. Maybe there's something to that, man. I, I don't know. There's a lot of themes in this movie. Uh, and, and before the show, I said, let's talk about what we want to talk about on the show as far as those <laughs> yeah. themes are concerned. Because you were the one to point that out. I, at first, I was like, there's a few. And then you started naming ones that I didn't even really notice. The movie's worth a rewatch for many of those. Uh, it's set in the Cold War in Berlin on mm-hmm. one side of the wall. Directly outside of the dance company, you walk outside. Boom, Berlin Wall. Like, straight up. There, there's elements of divide. Politics, what else? Yeah, I mean, division, fascism, feminism, sexuality. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all these really big themes. Uh, the big one, though, is that a lot of it is it's about the Holocaust. And it's about not necessarily the Holocaust specifically, but it's about 
the political kind of situation that allowed the, these kinds of things and atrocities to happen. Um, again, division. There's division within the but within the girls, within the city itself, within the coven itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of shows how this division can poison you and can cause really terrible things to happen because there are people speaking out about what's happening at the coven. Like there are girls, like girls are going missing, girls are getting hurt. Right. And when people speak out, they just kind of disappear or there no one believes them you know and this is the part that's again very similar to the holocaust when people were disappearing when jews were being taken off the streets like no one was doing anything about it no one was standing up no one was you know right um and so that that's i mean i did not expect to come into a horror movie and for it to comment on something as serious as that we should talk about the presentation of the mystical like the magic right because they they yeah. Sorry, before we get there, I do want to mention another character. There is the uh, psychiatrist mm-hmm. that um, is also an important character in the film. Uh, one of the Chloe Grace Moretz character, she for very for, at the very beginning, she comes in and talks to this old psychiatrist, and she's trying to tell him there's really weird things going on here. I think they're witches, and you know he just kind of blows off. You know, the, she, right. she's he, going to psychiatrist. Go, yeah. yeah, she's like, this is a delusion. She's, she's insane. She's going mad. But then, uh, you know, she goes missing in the very early in the film, and then he kind of spends a lot of a lot of the movie going to try and find her and and hunt her down. And he becomes a very integral part of the story as well. Yeah, he he in a, in a lot of ways is like the audience started trying to figure it out, like yeah. what is happening, what you know, what what's going on over there. He's on the outside looking in. We, the audience, have a little bit more of a, an interior view through Susie Banyan's eyes, but still, uh, it's 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 confusing. But like in the original Suspiria, because again, this one is fairly different. It's it's almost like Perfect Blue and uh, Black Swan. Like it really yeah. just it really just lifts that that idea of like the school and and Susie Banyan, and the rest of it is different. Um, Susie Banyan is 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 an outsider, but she's very quickly introduced into. The culture, they they immediately pick her up. You're great. We love you, uh, and and she becomes kind of this uh, vehicle through which, I guess, the mystical happens. Really, yeah, yeah. In, in a nice way to put it, like you said, they 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 kind of give her a little bit of oomph with her power, and they train her to, to become better. She doesn't seem to be aware any of this is happening, uh, but she, she gets better. And, or and is she? I don't know. Uh, uh, that's up to you to decide, I guess. I want to talk about the way magic is kind of presented. It's mostly done through glimmers of light. Yeah. In a similar way, if I had to compare it to anything this year, I'd say hereditary. Yeah. Reminded me of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, which is effective. It just works. It's it's a good visual. Hey, there's a passage of energy from here to there, and it can be mystical and it can be weird, but it's pretty it's pretty on the nose, like a lot of the premise of this movie, but. Uh, it gets lost later in the film, and we won't talk about that. You right, know, you yeah. got to watch that to see what that's about. But oh, um, I, I want to talk about structure. Okay, we should. So um, this film, and you learn this at the very beginning. It's in six acts with an epilogue. Yeah, and so that, that I feel like that really helped break down the time because you get you know you're gonna have six chapters and then a little bit at, at the end and the way it kind of moved through those I, I felt was real effective but it's it's a unique structure that I haven't really seen before. Yeah, I don't I I don't know if I can say I've ever seen a six act film. If you've ever seen and if you if you're wondering what that's like, I can give you a hint. If you've ever seen David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, that is a five act film. So that's kind of an idea of what you can expect. It's 
it's a little longer, it's a little more drawn out, and it doesn't quite feel like a, a clean, you know, beginning, middle, and end. But it works. And again, I, the movie opens with, uh, I think it's like Amazon, Luca, Luca Guadagnino and Amazon Studios present a film in six acts. Like, that's yeah. the very beginning. It's the first thing you see in the movie. And it's interesting how it just gives it to you up front. This movie does that a lot. It just is, hey, here's exactly what's going on. Things only get weird when it's your perception of reality of what you think is going on uh, or what is happening that's that's where things get not clumsy for me because i couldn't figure out what the hell is happening yeah <laughs> again it's worth a second viewing we should talk about well st structure anything else you want to say about that before i move um, on no other than it was interesting in that it helped break down the long runtime i wanted to mention the haunting score from tom oh, york yeah. uh which is Right up there with Johan Johansson's Mandy score or even uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's mid-90s score as one of, in my humble opinion, the best scores of the year. It is truly incredible. Incredible score. Every time the music kicked in, I, I was tuned in. It was really good. Yeah, so after I saw this, I immediately went home and put it on. And I've probably listened through it probably four or five times. I haven't yet, but I appreciate that you have. This show, this was like in stark contrast to Bohemian Raps. I didn't go home and listen to more Queen. I already know. I already know. I might have gone home and listened to more Queen. I didn't. I've already. I already know it. I don't. Um, but no, the the score is really haunting. There's a lot of modern mm -hmm. uh, kind of avant-garde things as well as more traditional. Uh, particularly with their scenes with Susie back in the states, uh, where we get some really good kind of more just normal <laughs> uh, kind of mainstream music. And then, but yeah, the the score absolutely haunting. Yeah, it's it's really good stuff and very. Oddly out of place. You'd think for something like this, you'd have a lot of like shining kind of like orchestra and, and stings and stuff like that. No, this this doesn't do that. Like it 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 doesn't it doesn't play that way. It's different. Like it, it it presents itself in an oddly modern manner for a story that's supposed to be told in the Cold War, which is really interesting. What else? Um, what, what, what I can we to, say I without ruining? To, yeah, the movie I wanted for to talk people? about. Well, like the horror part, like the scares, like what what do you think oh, is like scary or kind of disturbing to you in this film? Like what what kind of worked on that level? Okay, on well, the horror side, I would say it's unflinching in its present. Just just like how it says at the beginning, "Hey, they're witches." It is unflinching in their presentation of gore, straight up. Yeah, like it. I mean, there there's dream body horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a lot of body horror in, in ways that are fairly uncomfortable and it's not uncomfortable because you see somebody's arm break it's uncomfortable because you see somebody's arm break and then watch them writhe around in agony for four minutes like yeah. it's it's uncomfortable because it's like oh god it just doesn't look away it doesn't it reminds me of uh, 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 Fincher's Gone Girl, uh, uh, that, that scene at the end with Rosamund Pike Rosamund Pike and Neil Patrick Harris when she, she guts him. And, and like even that had flashes to black, but it is just brutal and gory. It's like, oh, God, like this is really, really bad. This movie does that in spades. It, it yeah. does not hide. And like I really respect it for it because... Most of the movie is is you know tense and terse and and something's gonna happen, but man when it when it comes down to the wire, Suspiria freaking delivers. It, <laughs> you, you get some good old fashioned body horror gore, um, and it's super effective because of it. Just like Titanic when the you know you know the boat sinking, like 
you probably know something's coming, especially if you listen to the podcast right now. When you actually get there, like it really is a satisfying yeah. payoff. So like you're not prepared for what's going to happen. What, what, what did you think? Um, yeah, so that's yeah, definitely the the body horror. Uh, also, it's just it's creepy because they're in this giant like building. It's multiple stories. It's super dark. Like the, the whole palette Very of dark. the film is yeah. is like these grays. Um, so you get a little bit of that that shining uh, disorientation. Uh, that happens in the film. Lots of creeping around dark yeah, hallways. It's, it is almost consistently raining in the film. Yeah. Uh, almost always. In fact, in, in a very odd kind of way, at the beginning of the film, we're coming up on fall, and it kind of starts raining when Susie gets to the academy. You get snow towards the end in, in the fourth and fifth acts. I was going to say sixth, but yeah. Uh, and, and then right at the end, you kind of get a turn back to spring. It's it's this element of, of, of rebirth, which is very prevalent in the plot of the film. Yeah. Uh, so very just rainy and gray and washed out all the time. But you get these really beautiful scenes of dance. Um there's this really wonderful element of reflection in mirrors and a lot of these dance halls. There's there's this cut you pointed this out constant running theme of the color red. I yep. still don't know what that means, but if you go see it, keep an eye out. Yeah, that's kind of the last thing I want to touch on is a little bit of the symbolism, and that's to say there is a ton in this film that I don't know what it means mm-hmm. or what it's about, and it like I'm only going to discover that through multiple viewings. Uh, there's like you said the same thing with glass and mirrors and like vision, like the the theme of like eyes and witnessing is is a big theme and I and I don't completely understand it. Yeah. Same, same thing with the color red. Perception of each other versus perception of self, a duality of body versus spirit. Like there's there's just a lot and and and, and again, I I wouldn't say, "Oh, it's just like The Shining." It's not just like The Shining. But it's the only thing I can think to hold it up to when I when I try to describe it as, as a horror film. Like it's it's truly one of those films I need to watch again and then again and again. I need to get the Blu-ray, put it on the shelf, and wait till next October and throw it on again. Like and just figure out like what what am I supposed to be getting here? Because there's so much and it's really hard to dig into at first. And I don't want to say that for before we close here. I don't want to say that to dissuade anybody because it's bold cinema and just like Mandy it's one of those movies you're either 100% in or 100% out I yeah. think you either really like it or you thought it was horrible um, I, I don't think it's quite like that because because I'm oddly in the middle I, I, don't, I, I can't truly say I guess if I had to put a line on it I like this movie but I can't say why and I, I, it's difficult <laughs> for me to describe how I liked it and how I enjoyed it and my experience during it it's tough man but if you if you like the odd and the unique and the eccentric in film, and you like some some odd horror that does some weird things, Suspiria might be right up your alley. Well, Andy, yeah. what? Any any closing thoughts? Before uh, we no, I think I'm ready for recommendations. Uh, would you recommend Suspiria 2018? I would say absolutely, because and it. I think it's it might be the best film of the year. It's definitely Ooh. one of the most important movies of the year. I know we still got Oscar season to get through. Yeah, um, but it's mostly because. Of what it's about and that it touches on incredibly deep and philosophical subjects that are were relevant in 1977 and are still relevant now. And I mean, I'm going to be watching this movie till kingdom come because there is so much to to kind of pull out of there. And I mean, there are a lot of difficult scenes. There are again, it's a horror movie. There's lots of scary moments. There's a lot of disturbing imagery. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, if you got a problem with that, 
that's that's one thing. But I still I I feel like everyone should see this movie because even if even if you even if it's not up your alley, it's bold cinema, and you're and you're only going to begin to understand yeah. bold cinema by mm-hmm. by going through it. I agree, um, man. I but I just, l- go ahead. So, but yeah, like. Just be prepared. Like it is, a, it is a long movie. Uh-huh. It is slow pace. It it's is deep, odd, yeah. deep and philosophical. So mm-hmm. just expect that. Um, I I would also recommend Suspiria. If you heard this review and you're thinking, "Man, I have to go see what this movie's about," it, this movie's made for you. I promise. If yeah, if you heard us babbling about all of this nonsense and you're thinking, "What is this? I want to see this movie and see what they're talking about," I promise you'll like it. Like it is, it is a really odd flick. It is very strange. Uh, it's not for everybody. I shouldn't promise anybody will like this, honestly. That's a mistake. No. I'm sorry. I retract that previous statement. You might like it. Um, I Keep an eye out for Suspiria on, on our top ten list at the end of the year. I'm sure it'll make an appearance. Uh, maybe in the top five. I gotta buy the Blu-ray for this. And, and just like The Shining, uh, although I loved watching it in a theater, I think my best experience watching Suspiria may just be at home, pair of surround sound headphones at night with the lights off alone yeah. like just nobody else around just you in the movie and just get just immerse yourself in it because Suspiria is a movie that begs you to look deeper uh, and that is our show I think yep. um, my god still running clean at just over an hour I love it next week we're taking the week off Andy that's right it's gonna be great uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm looking forward to it I, apologies if you're thinking damn where am I gonna get my off script we have 40 other episodes for you to listen to because this is episode 41 uh, thanks for listening to the show I think we're gonna have a lot coming up in December uh, definitely yeah. some in November so there's no shortage of movies to come but for what it's worth uh, next week we're taking it easy yeah. sorry and I'm sorry. I wanted to say that the our next show will be over uh Crimes of Grindelwald, fantastic yes. piece. Uh, we will have one or two guests in for that. We're still working that out, honestly. We should probably yeah. talk about that offline, but yeah. it's fine. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, the new Harry Potter film, fantastic piece, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and we'll see something else. Yeah, this is a but I don't know. We'll, we were talking about a beautiful boy, or boy erased, or some other boy something. Uh, we'll, we'll catch something. Uh, if you want to let us know what you think of the show, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're out there. We're, we're hanging out. It's cool. We post things too, and that's fun. Let us know what you think of the movies. Let us know what you thought of this show. If you think we're dumb, if you think we're totally right, you know, throw us a rate review on iTunes. Do what you gotta, uh, uh, share with your friends. That's, that's the big one. Email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com to let us know uh, if you have any thoughts about what we're doing or have any suggestions, recommendations, critiques from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.